This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Welcome to episode 30 of Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith. And I'm Caleb Castro. Last week we aired part one of an interview with Dr. James Eglinton, the Meldrum Senior Lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh and author of Bob Inc., a critical biography recently published by Baker Academic. We will now air part two of that interview for you this week. We are talking about Bovink on America, his experiences and perspectives in and on the United States. Now, you, you'd mentioned uh, from uh, his first trip, he goes and he, he's carrying forth this neo-Calvinism, this kind of new form of Calvinism or Kuyperianism, which we haven't uh, spoken about specifically yet on, on our podcast, still making our way towards some of that. Uh, I was curious there, you had written, uh, it was on page 186, uh, like Kuyper's position in his stone lectures, uh, Bavink says, Calvinism produces cultures that distinguish themselves, but extraordinary activity, queerness of thought, religious spirit, love of liberty, and by a treasure of civic virtues, which are not found to that extent among Catholic nations. I found that interesting there. Um, would you be able to explain kind of what he meant by extraordinary activity um, and like things such as civic virtues uh, and that difference with Catholic nations? Yeah, indeed. So it's, again, a good observation to pick that up in Bavink. Um, so what you find in Bavink and Kuiper is a particular retelling of what the Reformation was about. That the Reformation is not simply a rediscovery of something like justification by faith alone. It's not just a rediscovery of, of the doctrine of salvation, but it's actually a rediscovery of the doctrine of God, more profoundly than a rediscovery of something about humans. Um, and it's a rediscovery of, um, these aren't Bavink words, but Bavink's words, but like the godness of God, that God, uh, by virtue of being God, should be treated with or, or should be glorified in uh, across the entirety of the creation. And that also includes the whole of human life, human culture, uh, everything that humans produce. God is, is God in relation to all of it. And the Reformation rediscovers that rediscovers, for Bavink and Kuiper anyway, not just that the, uh, the true doctrine of how to be saved has been lost or, or badly um, confused, but also that um, to be brought into a right relationship with God um, then has knock-on effects beyond the walls of the church, let's say, and actually leads to the reformation of all of life and society for the glory of God. So they have this view of the Reformation that it produces, not just people who now know that they're justified by faith alone, saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, but also people whose lives then work that salvation out across um, you know, their civic lives, across their professions and their family lives, and how they create and participate in culture and society. And they view the Reformation as something that... Um, that then produced different cultures, Protestant cultures from the beginning. So it's not that dissimilar to some 
people have written about the Protestant work ethic, for example, um, that, that there is a distinct kind of Protestant culture that, that's industrious in a distinct way that comes about through, you know, taking away a sacred secular divide and saying that that actually your your um, secular work is also to be done for the glory of God. And that gives you a different motivation to do it. Um, and then you create a different kind of working culture. So that's very much in the background as well, that 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 Calvinism produces this in a distinct way. And they would also say compared to Lutheranism as well, or Anabaptism or Catholicism. So although in that quote, the one that you have, it's focused on Catholicism. Um, it's, uh, it is a critique of other kinds of Protestantism as well. So the idea for them is that if you go back to the time of the Reformation, you have not just a new way to think about, let's say, the gospel, but you also have a new way to think about God that then means you have a new way that you have to think about the world as well and how you live within it and what kind of world you make of it, um, which is really important for them in saying that like, you don't have that shift in a Reformation era Catholic cultural context, but you do have that in Reformation era Protestant contexts. And then they have they very much have a kind of history of, of the Western world that follows that development and says that it creates distinctive Protestant cultures. So sort of along those same lines, talking about Calvinism and its broader application in life, one of the things that Bovink was particularly critical of in America, as you note in the book, was its education, um, the church-state distinction, and particularly how that came through in public schooling. I uh, wonder if you could maybe expand on that a little bit and, you know, in your research and stuff, like, what did he see there and maybe contrast that with what he knew and understood from his Dutch context and what he thought would be better? Yeah, sure. So this is another contrast, actually, between his first trip to America and the second trip. So in the first trip, um, and this is in one of the appendices for the book where I've translated his notes um, on his journey to America, he's really complimentary about American schooling and that although there's no state religion, you know, an established church or something like that, um, Christianity nonetheless permeates education. Uh, and as well as that, the kind of college system was very different, to, or university system was very different to how that worked in the Netherlands, where in the Netherlands, um, higher education and, and Bavingston university level was very much for the aristocracy um, and not so much for, you know, the just ordinary people, the common citizen. Um, whereas in America, that was different. Education was something that the ordinary American aspired to, much more so than a non-elite Dutch person might have done at the time. And um, he, one of the lines that he has that's so striking in those notes about American education and the first trip is that at American universities, the students are treated as students and not lords, which I think is a really striking way to put it. That the Dutch student really at that point thinks that he is just the bee's knees. And, um, and is treated like that by the whole institution. Whereas in, in American education, it's very much about discipline, it's about character formation. The universities are not in big cities, which are kind of hot pots of sin um, and iniquity. Instead, they're in isolated areas. And you go there to have almost a monastic existence, a communal existence where your character is formed, you're taught to be disciplined, you're taught, um, and, you're, and you're given this aspiration to be educated. So he's really complimentary then, and he didn't pick up on American education as being a, a kind of training ground for unbelief at that stage. But in the second trip in 1908, he very much came away with that impression that the public school system was something that, that produced people who, who excluded the lordship of Christ from large parts of their existence because of the education that, that they were receiving, because the school system 
whether it had become more secular or whether it was just this perception had changed, I, I don't know. You maybe I would need to get into a conversation with a historian of American education in that period. Um, but something has changed anyway, um, even if it's just in his perception by that point. But in the background to that, he's also, um, he at that point had been in a really long uh, debate and struggle to support Christian schools in the Netherlands. And that only came to a head uh, later in life, in 1917, I think, um, when he finally, or his his group, won out in Parliament to get the Dutch state to support Christian schools financially. Um, so he, you know, there's probably something there in the Dutch background too. Um, that, uh, and at that stage in his, in his writing career as well, Bavink had written much more on the principles of Christian education than he had when he first went to America. So he's produced some really significant publications on by the second visit on um, the different kinds of pedagogical theories that were dominant in the day um, about kind of an anthropology of the child. Is a child inherently good or bad? Um, How do you account for the things in their lives that that are problematic? Um, How do you explain how to form them? Do they need, um, you know, a kind of technologically focused education? Um, Does it need to be quite... Uh, relationally based and so on, and and Bavink has written really important stuff at that point on on his own distinct Christian, a very holistic Christian view of education and the theology of thinking about the child um, as the image of God, but also as fallen and in need of redemption as uh, as a human who has a lot of common grace gifting, but who also needs special grace, and then in the light of that. Whose, whose common grace gifts can be focused in a different way. So I think his own mature thoughts by that stage on Christian education is just different, is much clearer. I think that's also a factor in how much more hypercritical he was of American public schooling at that point. Yeah, I think I recall um, uh, Yarsma writing on, on Bavink on that, something to the effect of what you're stating, that educational uh, philosophers like uh, John Dewey going in taking this more biological, psychological, and as you say, anthropological approach. Um, Bobby's kind of looking at this more in that, again, neo-Calvinist uh, mindset of the whole person, right? The All faculties, including uh, not, not just philosophical or psychological, but theological, right? The, the whole being. Yeah, so he's being very consistent there. And actually, the Jude def- reference is a good one because... Um... He, it's not in the biography. In the biography, it's just another level of granular detail in the background. But uh, he'd supervised the dissertation on Dewey as well um, in Amsterdam. So in this mature phase of his life, he, he really has thought much more intentionally about education. And I think, um, and this is part of the loss of this early approach to travel that you just go and appreciate, and you're not trying to judge anything that's foreign. Um, and you know your place a bit as a foreigner. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's a really different person by this stage in his mature life, actually. Another aspect of Bovink's relationship with America is his relationship to American Presbyterianism. He did, of course, have connections in the Dutch Reformed Church, but also with the Presbyterians, for instance. He maintained a correspondence and friendship with B.B. Warfield, and he did deliver the Stone Lectures at Princeton. <laughs> Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about that, his relationship with the Presbyterian Church and maybe where he found common cause, but where he may have also perceived difficulties or troubles? Yes, yeah, indeed. Those are are very interesting connections. Um, His his first mass exposure to Presbyterians in America came about um, in 1892 when he made this journey across the Atlantic 
and he went to the Presbyterian um, Presbyterian Alliance in Toronto, and that was something like you know like the Gospel Coalition or Together for the Gospel or something like that in its own days. So lots of Presbyterians from across the English-speaking world, so not just North America, um, and who all come together to hear theological lectures and listen to sermons and network. And um, so he goes there to try and communicate the best parts of Dutch Calvinism to Anglo-Presbyterians. So he has that kind of um, of connection in the first place. And across his life, he also has a lot of connections to Presbyterians in the UK as well, uh, both in Scotland and in England. So there's that kind of commonality that's, um, that makes them a very ready conversation partner to him. And he also perceives something quite distinctive to add to what they have. Um, so I think the basic critique of Anglo-Presbyterianism for Bavink is that, in his words, it is reformed, but not Calvinistic. And for Bavink, those two terms mean very different things. So to be merely reformed for Bavink is that you have, you know, a Calvinistic view of salvation, so doctrines of grace, soteriology, and you have a biblically reformed view of the church, but that's where the process of reformation stops, I guess. So it's kind of bound into those two things. Whereas a Calvinist, he says, has those things, but also much more. So a Calvinist also is someone who is intentionally Christian in how he thinks about um, society, art, science, um, how all of these things, how the gospel is also good news for all of these things. So the process of ongoing reformation extends out across all of life for Bavink. So that's something that he that he tries quite consistently to communicate to Presbyterians who he thought were merely reformed and needed to be Calvinists or neo-Calvinists. But nonetheless, you know, he he still has he has other close connections to Presbyterians. And as you point out, B.B. Warfield is an obvious one. I think that the, so there are really interesting things that go on underneath the surface there in those kinds of relationships that show how. Um, maybe what Bavink is doing theologically um, is just a bit different to what you find in old prints than that you see, for example, in just the the kind of debates that you find that are quite different between the two, like old Princeton and, and evolution or common sense realism. Uh, and those are quite different to the emphases and accents that you find in, in Bavink's thought and in those around him as well, um, which is more focused on... Um, because you could call them presuppositional ways of thinking, even if we don't elevate that to a kind of an ism for Bavink. Um, but there's there's more of an emphasis on, on say, starting points, and, and not just beginselen, um, but principles um, that you then work on the basis of, um, rather than kind of common appeals to, to re- shared reasoning or something like that. And I think that's actually quite a significant difference between than the Presbyterians that he engaged with in the old Princeton school and, and what's going on in the Netherlands at that point. You spoke of this uh, this difference between the Reformed and, uh, and say, the Calvinist, particularly in this case, the Neo-Calvinist. Now, I, I find that, uh, you know, of course, an interesting thing in this period where there, there's something of a Calvinistic revival, if you will. Um, I don't know how it is in the in the UK or in Europe. Over here, we there's been that, uh, you know, young restless and reformed movement. You know, and in, in reading uh, from his first trip to America, he you, you, you note that Bobbing traced out this cultural shift uh, at the end, uh, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, brought about by the various turmoils going on in uh, Europe at the time, the French Revolution, abusive uh, monarchy, and so on. Europe 
takes on this a little bit more of a, a, a pantheistic mode or out- outlook in life, whereas America staggered a bit, remained kind of in deism, um, highly optimistic and moralism, which in a lot of ways still seems to be the case. You even use the phrase, America is likely to re- remain the land of moralistic deism. You know, we speak often of uh, moralist, uh, therapeutic moralistic deism. Yeah, so Christian Smith. Uh, yeah. Right. My, my, my thought on this was, you know, we're... we're you had assessed Bovink's thoughts on um, Europe was a little more uh, morally apathetic and uh, had something a little bit more of a uh, was a little more fertile to receive the worldview of Calvinism and Reformed, uh, whereas America was much more likely to remain with Arminianism. And I was curious on kind of how this, I guess, turned out in the 20th century and present. You know, um, was Bovink accurate in this? I mean, it does it seem that Europe embraced Calvinism throughout the 20th century, or did Christianity remain a stagger? Likewise, with uh, with America, uh, this this kind of young restless reform revival, uh, if you will, it would be really interesting to see what uh, what Bobbing thought of that. Uh, if you'd see it as like kind of a more Methodistic Calvinism, yeah, you'll get the answers. At least some of the answers to your question by the time you finish the biography, because the the last couple, well, the last two long chapters are very much about that question. It's a really good mm-hmm. question. Um, I think in the what Bavink saw in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s was that in his own Dutch context, Calvinism was tremendously appealing to people um, for the reasons that you just identified. So people in Netherlands by that point were really traumatized by a hard century of different points of starvation, war, uh, as you say, you know, not, not feeling well, not just feeling, being truly persecuted by your own royal family in some contexts, um, bloody revolutions, even all the horrors of the second industrial revolution for um, for a lot of people as well who were treated like worthless working machines um, and just sent to work on factory lines until their bodies had worn out and they died. Um, so it was a really tough century and also the dominant forms of christianity at least in terms of intellectual life were so um beholden to the enlightenment that um they they were really just falling away and um so a lot of people even struggle to know can we look to christianity for hope to the future because if you go to the university they'll tell you no christianity is in its death throes and it has nothing to offer mm-hmm. and these that, that's coming from people who identify as christian theologians so people were really despairing and um, unsure about the future. And so if you look in, in, around Dutch cultural life in the 1880s and 90s, the questions are questions about the future. What kind of future does this society, does this society have? What do we have to do with each other? We all disagree about so much now. And, um, and people were really increasingly morally apathetic um, because there'd been a big shift towards pantheism, it's the kind of philosophy of the day. And if God is the world itself, and the world is a really cruel place that disappoints you, um, why should you really care that much about living a life that morally you think satisfies God? Uh, it feels more like God has given up on you, so you give up on God. So in that kind of a context, all of a sudden you have Abraham Kuyper appearing, talking about this religion, which is God saves you by grace alone. And that grace has a transformative power that extends into all of life and even that can extend into all of society and that can renew not just your relationship to God, but also your relationship to your neighbor as well. And that's the power to do that for a whole nation. And for Kuiper, you know, there's a kind of Dutch story that goes on mm-hmm. uh, with all of this as well that Bavink bought into in that phase of life. That this is the story of the Dutch and the next chapter will be that we'll all go back to Calvinism. And for Bavink, for 
for a while, he, for, for a couple of decades, really, he believed this. And it looked like all of that was coming true when Kuiper became prime minister um, on behalf of his modern Calvinist political party in, 19, in 1901. And, um, but then that doesn't last for long. And culture changed very dramatically in the early 20th century in the Netherlands. And um, I think in a way that Baving just didn't expect. Uh, it becomes a, what we might look back on and call a kind of postmodern chaos, even uh, in its earliest inception, where you have people who have radically different worldviews that bear no relation to each other. And they live across the street from each other, but they live in very different worlds all of a sudden. And... Um, the country becomes a, a pretty cacophonous environment, a clash of a million different worldviews, and um, where they're all just expected to go on living side by side, believing um, incredibly different things and with, with extremely different values as well. And that's a world that Baving just couldn't imagine earlier in his life, that people would want collectively to live so chaotically in terms of life and worldview. Um, so the way that it panned out was that, that, that the last two decades of Baving's life were spent in a very different culture to the, the one he thought he would spend those in. Um, so you'll find that in the book, um, the theme of those chapters is very much how he adapts to this. Um, part of that is prioritizing evangelism amongst his fellow citizens, because they're truly estranged from Christianity in a way that he'd never seen before in his life, uh, and should be treated, in fact, as, as pagans, even though they... They're, they're Dutch as well. They're, they're now unchristianized and tough to be reached as though for the first time with the gospel, which is historically quite a radical thing for a, a Dutch person to say. So part of that is, 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 is just this new context that he's in. And part of it is also his sustained engagement with Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist, over these last two decades of his life. Uh, I think Nietzsche is probably his most consistent conversation partner in these decades, actually. Nietzsche is all throughout his texts um, because Nietzsche now is this great figure that is reshaping Dutch culture and along anti-Christian lines. Thank you for coming on. We don't want to keep you any longer than uh, we said we would. Maybe just uh, one final brief question. So the average lay person in our churches comes to you and, and asks you, why should I read Bob Inc.? What, what do you tell them in maybe just a couple of sentences? Mm, wow. Yeah, that's a, I get asked that too in my, in my own church as well. Um, why read this guy? Um, I think fundamentally because Bavink will help you think cl more clearly um, about how to live Coram Deo as you in the world in which you live. So how to live before the face of God in a holistic way. Um, so how to pursue a life for the glory of God um, across all, your whole life um, and how to see Christianity as something that's not limited to, you know, to what you do in church on Sunday, as, as important as that is, or um, private devotional practices, as important as they are, but actually that lays claim on the whole of your life. And um, so Bavink is just such a great resource in glimpsing what that might look like, um, that it's possible even as a modern person in the modern world to pursue the glory of God across uh, across your whole life and, uh, and really push back against the secularization of your life where Christianity addresses some parts of it, but not others. And there are other parts that um, that are untouched by, by the gospel and its reforming power. Well, thank you, Dr. Eglinton, for joining us today. Again, uh, James Eglinton, Meldrum Senior Lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, author of Bob Inc., A Critical Biography, uh, just published by Baker Academic. Uh, we thank you for your time today. Thank you. I'm really thank grateful you. to you guys for having me. It's been 
really enjoyable to talk and I'm grateful for the work that you guys do on the Bavcast. Um, I think hopefully one thing that you now know, uh, having read the biography about your own podcast, is that it's named after Herman Bavinck, but uh, has you know longer history than that. It's named after St. Bavo, 17th century mm-hmm. Catholic hermit. <laughs> the Bavinck family bore his name as well. <laughs> so we have a whole other avenue to explore. You, we'll you start could, talking about St. Bavo. This, the St. Bavo cast. <laughs> <laughs> Make it ecumenical. Well, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll see how that turns out. It would be a that'd be a fun one. Uh, well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, hopefully at some point we might be able to pick your brain again. Make sure to get Dr. Eglinton's latest book, Bob Inc., A Critical Biography. If you're interested in Bob Inc., it's a very helpful resource to get to know the man behind the theology. As always, if you have any questions, you can send us an email at bovcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Bovcast where you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, leave us a review so that it helps people to find the show. That'll do it for this week's Bobcast, and until next time, Toad Zines. Toad Zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.